Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to episode 221 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Today's episode was researched and written by Hayes from Podcast She Wrote, a new crime podcast which is launching soon, so look out for it. The story is a fascinating one. It begins in a small seaside town in the UK, covers several US states, spans two decades, and incorporates taking the identity of a well-known horror writer, learning to fly, a legally questionable wedding, playing poker in Las Vegas with Mel Gibson, a revengeful daughter-in-law, and signing autographs from prison. What more could you possibly want? I'm delighted that this podcast is brought to you by World Car Parts, the online parts specialists. What I love about World Car Parts is they're a small business and their main focus is on customer service, getting it right first time every time. They're based in Lincolnshire with worldwide delivery. They've got a huge range of parts for all cars, including car care and accessories. You speak to real people. There's Harkin, Sarah, Rachel and Jody. And they don't inflate their prices to give discounts. You get their best price all year round. As a listener to this show, you will qualify for a 10% discount. So please just go to worldcarparts.co.uk and get your discount today. Thank you. Before we begin, a huge thank you to all my supporters on Patreon, but especially the new members of this exclusive club. That is Joe Varney, Kate Winship and Joanne McHugh. And a big thank you to the following who've increased their support. That's Carice, Catherine Spencer-Cook, and, <laughs> I love this one, Adam secretly loves the Kings of Leon. Hmm. Thank you all so much for your support. And we have a new competition for supporters on Patreon for February. This is a free complimentary ticket to join me at True Crime Live in Birmingham. That's taking place on the 9th of October. There's some great speakers there. I'll be there as well, but don't let that put you off. That's a free ticket to one lucky winner on Patreon, and all other supporters on Patreon will get access to discounted tickets from tomorrow. So please just head along to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime. Let's set some context with our guest the month and year competition. Top of the UK and US charts was Whitney with I Will Always Love You. You might know it. Top of the album charts this year was Whitney again with the soundtrack to The Bodyguard. Basically, it was a Whitney fest. In the news this month, Czechoslovakia separated into the Czech Republic and Slovakia. Bill Clinton was inaugurated as the 42nd US President. And British Airways admitted liability and apologised unreservedly for a dirty tricks campaign against Virgin Atlantic. You see... Their management behaved terribly back then, not just now. Did you guess the month and year? It was January 1993. Today's story is from Felixstone, Suffolk, a small town not far away from Ipswich on the east coast of England. The old town is beautiful and quaint, 
The port of Felixstowe, which is the largest UK container port, less so. Eddie Mayer described what happened on the 22nd of January 1993. At 9.30, I was parked in front of Lloyds Bank in dreary Felixstowe, Suffolk, getting ready to throw the biggest metaphorical rock in the pond of my life. It's fair to say I was crapping myself. Inside the bank, it was a normal Friday morning, and staff at the Lloyds branch on Hamilton Road, the town's main shopping thoroughfare, were waiting for the Securicor van to deliver banknotes for their cash machines. The van arrived manned by two guards, as was customary. As one of the guards, Peter Gunn, got out of the van to deliver the cash, his colleague remained with the vehicle. The delivery was made around incidents, and the Securicor employee made small talk with the first cashier, who was responsible for taking the money. Glancing outside, Peter noticed that the van had moved from where it had been parked, but there were roadworks being undertaken just outside the bank at the time, so he assumed the driver had been moved on by officious traffic wardens. Hey, we know what they're like. And was probably driving around the block and would return shortly. But after some time had passed, the realisation finally dawned on them that the van wasn't coming back. The other security guard, Eddie Mayer, was driving away with £1.2 million in cash. Peter's reaction was wonderfully British, telling the stunned cashiers, I wouldn't mind, but I left my pat lunch in the van. Eddie Mayer was born on the 2nd of June 1955, though his actual birthday was not confirmed until he turned 14, when his family found his birth certificate. Up until that point, they'd been celebrating his birthday on the 4th of June. But with a house full of children, it must have been difficult to keep up. Eddie's father had four children from a previous relationship. His mother had two. Then together they had six more, including Eddie. Wow, imagine homeschooling that lot. With their Irish heritage, Mayer's parents were keen for him to enrol in a Catholic school, but he soon began to rebel. It was the late 60s, and the skinhead culture at that time was the perfect antithesis to the strict Catholic upbringing for young Eddie, and he began playing truant to meet with his friends in the local cafes, eventually leaving school at 15. Mayer had a few minor brushes with the law around this time, but aged 16, he married 17-year-old cougar Sandra, who was pregnant with their first child, and he vowed to go straight. However, he was soon put on probation for borrowing a moped he found, and whilst on probation, he was caught forging football tickets. Facing jail, Mayer decided he only had one course of action left, not to serve his time, but to run away and join the army. He enlisted with the Royal Green Jackets, but he had to declare any criminal convictions. The army took pity on the young father and agreed to send an officer to court with him to act as a probationer, so preventing a custodial sentence, and his plan worked. Mayer felt at home in the army, so he was devastated when government cutbacks meant last in, first out, and he was given an honourable discharge. For the next few years, Mayer drifted aimlessly from job to job. In November 1979, aged 24 with an 8-year-old son, Mayer finally found his calling when he was invited to an interview at the London Fire Brigade's headquarters in Lambeth, South London. He got the job and started working his way up through the ranks, undergoing all the relevant training and fitness tests required. 
Aside from a small sidelining renting knockoff naughty VHS tapes, the rumours of them being filmed in a Rochdale sauna are largely unsubstantiated. Mayer was finally the respected, law-abiding citizen he always knew he could be. However, his 11-year career in the fire service would come to an abrupt halt when a dislocated arm caused by a particularly brutal rugby tackle would leave him with an injury that disqualified him from continuing to work in such a physically demanding role. Unsure what to do next, Mayer turned to catering, running several baked potato stalls. His marriage to Sandra had irrevocably broken down, and he met Debbie Brett, an air hostess. They set up home in Dartford, Kent, where Debbie gave birth to their son Lee, and in 1991 they took ownership of the Gardener's Arms pub in nearby Higham. One weekend, whilst Debbie had taken their toddler son to her mum's for some respite from the pub's more rowdy patrons, and Mayor's now teenage son Terry was staying with him, he was awoken in the early hours by the unmistakable smell of burning and realised that the pub was ablaze. Mayor hurried Terry out of the building and sent him to the phone box to call the fire brigade, but his trained eye knew that the fire had taken way too much of a hold for anything to be salvaged. The actual cause of the fire is still open to debate, but once again, Mayor had to start afresh. There was insurance to deal with before the pub could be rebuilt and made habitable again. Mayor packed up what little they had left and took his family on a trip to Canada and the US, spending time in New Hampshire, where they both agreed they could happily settle down and start a new life, if only they had the means to do so. The pub was eventually rebuilt, but Mayor and his partner Debbie agreed that this was not where they wanted to bring up their son. They sold up and moved to a rental in Southwood and Ferrers in Essex, where Mayor began to look for work once more. He applied for a role with Securicor as he needed a job with flexible hours that would allow him to spend time with Debbie and Lee, and he already had experience delivering cash in transit as he'd done it for a short while while he was in the fire brigade. So what did make Mayor... A hard-working family man with no large debts or significant money worries decide to try and pull off the most audacious heist of the decade. According to Mayor himself, it began, as the best plans often do, with a few beers in a pub in Ilford. Mayor was talking to some men at the bar and began boasting about what he did for a living. When one of the assembled crowd asked if he was ever tempted to take the odd grand here and there, Mayor casually replied that it would be easier to take the whole van. A few nights later, there was a knock at the door at their family home. Three men, who have never been identified, but whom Mayor refers to as Mr Chatty, Scarface and Ratty, asked if his partner and son were home. Slightly perturbed by this, Mayor sent them away, only for them to return after a couple of days, insisting they needed to talk. Finally, Mayor agreed to hear what they had to say. The pub he'd been drinking in was frequented by members of East End gangs, and Mayor assumed that his conversation had been overheard and passed on. These were not the sort of people you really wanted to upset. Mayor later recalled the conversation he had with the man known as Ratty. You see, Eddie, the thing is we represent a very driven group of individuals. They have a special interest in you because they know what you do 
and they know that you know how to relieve your bosses of some of their cargo. They want to help you have a better life. If you do this little thing for them, you, Debbie and Lee, can start again somewhere new. A new life, a new identity, plenty of money, no more shitty jobs, no more shitty debts. You'll be looked after. You really will be a mug if you don't do what you're told. You owe it to Debbie and the kid. It would be a shame if anything happened to them. Work with us, Eddie, and they are all protected. But if you're not with us, you are against us. And we can't guarantee what will happen to any of you. This not-so-subtle threat was enough for Mayor to comply, on the condition that he could get away to live in America. The men agreed and said they would call in a few days to confirm the date of the robbery. Once he knew the day, Mayor was to get a taxi to work and go about his delivery run as normal. He would be watched and followed and would get the nod when it was time to drive away with the money. The next obstacle was how to get Debbie and Lee out of the country so they would not be implicated in any way. Mayor achieved this by offering Debbie what he delightfully referred to as a shit sandwich, delivering a piece of bad news between two slices of good. He informed his partner that he'd received a bonus from work and they could go on holiday. The downside was he could only get tickets on standby, so they'd have to leave soon. As Mayor had not had a chance to book time off himself, he would have to join them later, but that's the only way he could afford to take them to America. Debbie and Lee flew out to Boston, where they could enjoy some time exploring, before travelling via train to Dallas, where Mayor would join them for the remainder of their trip, and drop the bombshell that they would not be returning to the UK. Just a minor point. The call came a few days later. The date was set for that Friday, the 22nd of January, so Mayor ordered a taxi pickup for 5am, leaving his car at home as instructed. That morning, he took one last look around as he left for the last time. The drive to the Chelmsford depot was uneventful, and upon arrival, Mayor was paired up with Peter Bunn for the day's rounds. They exchanged pleasantries and loaded the van. The registration plate was H4850AX, looks very much like hoax, with approximately 50 bags containing £25,000 each, and they began driving to Felixstowe, about an hour away. Peter later told the police that Mayor was very calm during the drive, but when Mayor heard this, he said he was clearly a better actor than he thought, as he was absolutely petrified about what would happen next. They arrived in Phoenix though and made their first drop off and pick up at a post office before driving to the bank just before 9.30am. The bank was not yet open so they waited in the van until Peter saw a member of staff arrive and went to check they were ready for the delivery. Mayor waited anxiously in the van not knowing what the signal would be, what he should be looking out for and what was going to happen next. Peter had been gone less than a minute when Mayor saw his own car an Opal Ascona, pulled up alongside the van. It was being driven by Ratty, with Mr Chatty sitting beside him. They gestured for Mayor to follow them, and that was that. He just pulled away from the curb and drove off with the money, and of course Peter's pat lunch. Mayor later said, The getaway was, most likely, the most mundane, uneventful getaway in the history of bank jobs. As they made their way along the seafront, 
Mayor heard Peter's confused voice over the radio in the cab of the van. Eddie, Eddie, where are you? Eddie, where are you? After a few minutes, the Escona pulled into Manning's amusement park and Mayor poured in close behind them. Mr Chatty jumped out and banged on the side of the van. Mayor let him in and they started to load the bags of cash into the airlock. Ratty transferred the money into the Ascona, piling it into the boot in the footwells. Mayor climbed into the back seat and from there they drove to a nearby car park where Scarface was waiting beside a Toyota people carrier. Mayor was ushered into the footwell on the passenger side as Ratty and Mr Chatty unloaded the Ascona and loaded up the Toyota. Scarface then drove the Toyota away, leaving the other two to dispose of the Ascona, which was later found abandoned and burnt out somewhere in Essex. Back at the bank there was complete confusion. No one could quite believe what had happened, which is why the police were not contacted straight away. The bewildered bank staff and even more bewildered Peter Bunn were still expecting the van to reappear at any moment. The delay meant that the police initially assumed that the members of staff were complicit in the theft and they were interviewed at length. But once the staff were cleared, it was suspected that Mayor had been kidnapped and units were dispatched to the port of Felixstowe, assuming that the getaway transport was likely to be a boat. Other units were dispatched to the main road, the A14. Felixstowe, if you don't know it, is a town on a peninsula with literally only one road in or out. The police eventually discovered the van 45 minutes later, but it being a security van, they were unable to gain access without the assistance from someone from Securicor. It was reported that some officers had still expected to find Mayor tied up inside, a victim rather than the perpetrator. Instead, all they found were hundreds of coins, as the thieves only took the notes. Mayor said later that he wished he could have seen the looks on the officers' faces when they opened the back of the van. He also remarked, My mum would have been really angry with me because there were a lot of 50p pieces on that run and she used to religiously collect 50 pences for the gas meter. We had to save all our 50p's to keep the boiler going. She could have had free gas for life with all the coins we left behind. I can hear her now. What a flipping waste. Sometime later, Mayor and Scarface arrived at a run-down block of flats in Wapping, East London. Mayor was shepherded up the stairs and into a small, sparsely furnished flat and told to sit tight until he could be reunited with Debbie and Lee in Dallas. By Saturday, the news had gone national and the papers and TV had made it their main story. By Sunday, Mayor's photograph was everywhere. The press had named him Fast Eddie and it stuck. He spent over a week keeping his head down and watching the news, amused by the amount of false leads, but he was desperate to see Debbie and Lee again. On the 3rd of February, Suffolk Police issued a statement saying they'd pursued over 500 lines of inquiry, interviewed 450 people, and were following leads in 15 countries, completely unaware that Mayer was just 90 minutes away from where the robbery took place. At some point, Mr Chatty arrived at the flat, instructed Mayor to smarten himself up, put on some comically large glasses, and they went to get passport photographs taken. The date that Mayor had given Debbie for his flight to Dallas was rapidly approaching, 
and he was starting to worry. Then the day before he was due to fly, Mr Chatty arrived with a passport and a United Airlines business class plane ticket from London Heathrow to Dallas, Texas. Nair looked at the passport in disbelief. His new identity was Stephen King. Finally, Nair was given his cut. He was given a bag containing five bundles of £25,000 from the Securical Delivery, so £125,000. Enough to disappear, for sure, but not the £1.2 million he was suspected of leaving the country with. He wrapped the cash up in towels, put them in a suitcase, added the small amount of clothes and toiletries he'd been given, and headed to the airport. Mayer was able to leave the country under the alias of Stephen King without incident, and was reunited with Debbie and Lee at Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport, where he broke the news that he was now Stephen, she was Sarah, and they were going to start a new life in the US and would not be able to contact their families in the UK again. I'd have loved to have witnessed that conversation, wouldn't you? Stephen and Sarah King rented an apartment in Dallas for a few weeks, and if anyone asked, Stephen was a photocopier salesman from Essex, had just sold his business, and was spending time in the States to seek out new business opportunities. Unable to get used to cockroaches in Texas, the Kings then moved to Woodland Park, 80 miles west of Colorado Springs. But meanwhile, the investigation back in the UK was progressing, but slowly. The police had discovered that Debbie had flown to Boston and stayed in a hotel there, but a request to fly out and interview staff was refused. Meanwhile, sightings of Mayer were being reported from across Europe and as far afield as Jamaica. These false leads meant that the couple were able to buy a house and settle down with little interference. Mayer discovered that he had a talent for forging documents and was able to provide Lee with a new birth certificate under the name Lee King. The 125000 was rapidly being depleted. Mayer knew he had to make some more money somehow, and remembering past successes playing blackjack, he flew out to Vegas and played the casinos, having a few decent-sized wins. This then became a regular part of their new life. Mayer would later recall the time he'd lost track of time, it was 3am, and Debbie had come down to look for him, only to find him playing poker alongside Mel Gibson. With his winnings, Mayer bought a Piper Warrior plane, took flying lessons and got his pilot's licence. They lived what was for them an idyllic life of hunting, shooting and fishing, and during one of their regular trips to Vegas, they got married to officially become Mr and Mrs King. Still concerned about having enough convincing ID for Lee, Mayer took an online course to become a reverend, which enabled him to perform baptisms. It is said by some that in many of the deeply religious states, a certificate of baptism can be as important a form of ID as a birth certificate. The king stayed in Colorado for two and a half years, but the money was running out again and people were starting to ask questions. Why didn't they ever go back to the UK to see family? How come their family never came to visit? Mayer knew it was time to move on. He decided to sell his beloved plane and made inquiries at the airfield. He found a buyer and received a deposit, but the purchaser told Mayer he thought that he was dodgy and might have to go to the cops about the mysterious Englishman. It was definitely time to leave. 
1996, they packed up and moved to Concord, New Hampshire. Mayer needed a green card in order to work. He knew his brother had one, as he'd married a US citizen and was living out there too. So Stephen and Sarah King now changed identity again, becoming Mick and Sarah Mayer. Mayer was finally able to work. He took his commercial vehicle license and got a job as a trucker. Life moved on, and in 1997 they had a son called Mark. In 1998, on the fifth anniversary of the heist, police in the UK tried to revive interest and urged people to come forward if they had any information. There was speculation that Mayer was in the US, but the general feeling was that he'd got away with it, and good luck to him. In September 2001, the awful terrorist attacks in New York changed everything. Mayer noticed a significant shift in attitude towards non-American citizens. People were generally more suspicious, and tightening restrictions on domestic travel, with more focus on security and closer inspections of ID, would make life much more difficult for a fugitive. An opportunity for promotion came up at the media company that Mayer was then working for, which involved relocating to South Carolina. Mayer readily agreed and the family were on the move once again. They stayed in Florida for a while and after another promotion, moved to Philadelphia and from there to Green Bay, Wisconsin. In 2006, when Lee was 16, the family moved to Grafton, just outside Milwaukee. Lee was asking more questions about his family back in the UK. Mayer told him he had an older brother, Terry, and Lee could not understand why he was not allowed to contact him. When Lee's girlfriend Kayla became pregnant, he insisted on moving in with her and her family, and Mayer agreed it was for the best, seeing history repeating itself. They had a daughter, Sophie, in 2007. When Lee and Kayla's relationship broke down, Mayer decided to move Debbie and Mark away, giving Lee some space. This time they moved to Minneapolis, and then from there to Ozark, where he and Debbie hoped to remain indefinitely. After Debbie had a mild heart attack in 2008, Mayer took some time off work to look after her, but the money was almost gone, and in 2011, Mayer declared himself bankrupt. Meanwhile, his son Lee was having more luck, He won $100,000 on a scratch card and was living an extravagant lifestyle. His newfound wealth attracted the attention of a woman called Jessica Butler and the two soon became an item, later marrying in a lavish ceremony. When the money ran out, the couple argued and Jessica would taunt Lee over his mysterious secretive family. After one particularly nasty row, Jessica began searching the internet for information on her husband's family and was shocked by what she found out. On the 6th of February 2012, Jessica walked into the Ozark police station and informed the officer on duty that she knew the whereabouts of a British fugitive, Fast Eddie Mayer. It was over. When Mayer discovered his time on the run was at an end, he sat down with Lee and Mark and told them everything. There was nothing more to do and sit and wait for the FBI to show up. When they did, it wasn't subtle. Their house was surrounded by several teams from various departments. They piled in and started seizing documents and ID, and Mayer was led out in shackles. He later said, The front garden was full of uniforms. 
they were all standing around, looking a bit forlorn. Perhaps they were looking forward to a good old-fashioned shootout, or maybe they expected me to resist. They were probably a bit disappointed when they realised the UK's most wanted criminal was a middle-aged, overweight, balding bloke. All the FBI were able to charge Mayer with at this time was a legal possession of a firearm as it had been purchased with forged ID. But they kept him detained for six months whilst waiting to be extradited back to the UK to face charges for the Felix Stowe robbery. Meanwhile, Debbie was in a state of limbo and she had no valid passport and was in the country illegally but had a son who was a minor and a US citizen. Eddie Mayer's name was everywhere. He began signing autographs, Not So Fast Eddie, which were then sold on eBay. Realising that any time spent in jail in the US would have no bearing on his eventual sentence in the UK, Mayer asked the district attorney if they would release him on bail if he agreed to fly straight back to the UK to face charges there, and they agreed. Mayer was accompanied back to the UK by two US marshals, who then handed him over to the Met Police. They took him to the local police station where he was formally charged with the 1993 theft, then taken to HMP Norwich, which was the nearest to where the crime was committed. Mayer didn't spend long inside and he was released in February 2015 when he was reunited with Debbie and Mark, who had stood by him throughout everything. Mayer published his book, Fast Eddie, My Life on the Run as Britain's Most Wanted Criminal in 2017 and he gave several television and print interviews to publicise it, but he now lives a quiet life in retirement in Eastbourne, East Sussex, with Debbie by his side. Mayor is philosophical about his years on the run, he said, There is so much more to my life than a stolen van. Rightly or wrongly, that moment defines me for the people I meet, but there are so many incidents and stories behind it. I've been a Las Vegas gambler, a trucker, a corporate suit, I've saved lives, I've pulled people from fires and off mountains and taught people back from the brink of suicide. It's a story of immense breadth. There is so much more to tell and mine has not been a life wasted by a single crime. Nothing is known about Mayor's shady accomplices and no one else has been charged in connection with the theft. Police do not believe that Mayor acted under duress. So what do you think of what you've heard today? It's quite a story, isn't it? But with Mayer, there's always a question of his somewhat tricky relationship with the truth. The story he tells is all very gentle and full of him being the poor victim, whereas others take a different view, believing him to be much more involved and proactive in arranging the robbery. But I suppose in the end, nobody was hurt in this most gentle of robberies. So on this occasion, I'm firmly in camp fast Eddie. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast and a big thank you again to Hayes for writing this episode. Check Hayes out at Podcast She Wrote. And to discuss this story and any other aspect of UK True Crime, please head to the Facebook group. And to support the show, please head to patreon.com slash UK True Crime. There you'll find bonus episodes, the chance to watch me recording the show live, competitions including the chance to win your free ticket to true crime live and so much more it will make you a better person and better looking apparently so they say
So on that winning bombshell, that's all from me for today. Thank you so much for listening to the UK's 37th most popular UK true crime podcast. And until we speak again next week, take it easy, despite all the others. I know, I know. But most of all, stay classy. Cheerio. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.